I hope as you experience life that you remain teachable at all times from the Lord and not just on Sundays because his school is always open. In fact, some of the most teachable moments are not on Sundays, but are in those times of life where, uh, as, as we mentioned, the surprises come. Um, you know, Jesus had lectures and he had labs. And often after a lecture, he would provide a lab that would um, give the disciples an opportunity to apply what they've learned and what they were taught. Anyway, I, I mentioned that to you because, um, you know, some of what Jim shared about the, the blessing of this deathbed experience is not something that we all get to enjoy. My father died three weeks ago, and um, I thought everything was okay between us. And come to find out, I uh, found out through means that I don't need to get into, uh, he died with something between us that I never was aware of and never got to straighten out. So uh, don't wait. As Jim said, she had that moment of clarity. <clears throat> You've got that moment of clarity now. Don't wait uh, for the last moment and putting off something that you feel like would be uh, uh, that's unsaid. Now's the time to do it. Now's the time to do it. Because then you got the rest of your life to enjoy that, that uh, fellowship. I remember um, a couple months ago, I was driving down the highway. I was on my way um, to a library. It was pretty early. And the traffic was pretty thick. You know, it was pretty tight. I-35 is not the most sanctified place for drivers. <laughs> especially with all the construction that's been going on. So I was headed south, and it was in one of those gauntlets, you know, where they, they've got concrete. You're basically like driving in this tunnel with lanes that seem much narrower than they should be, and you're all kind of weaving back and forth together. Well, so I'm, and I drive a Prius, which is nice because it gives me a little more space than your average car on the road. And it's also good when monster trucks come up beside you that take up more space than the average car. This monster truck pulled up beside me, and so we're going you know, neck and neck through this gauntlet, and then he decides, you know, my, this guy's lane looks a little better than mine. And he lurches over into my lane. The trouble was he wasn't clear of my hood yet. And so this monster truck comes over, and all I see in my windshield is this wheel and so I slam my brakes on, and he misses me, and, you know, probably never even knew what he did to my morning. And what I screamed at him, I won't repeat to you, <laughs> but, but I'll tell you, it was a mere 15 minutes after my quiet time. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes you just think, you know, Lord, I just spent an hour with you, and yet I just cussed at this man. And, um, but I call people like this opportunists. He saw an opportunity, and he didn't really care that I was in his way. He just decided to run right over me. It's, it was a literal experience, but it's also a metaphorical experience that we have with other people a lot of times. Few things are more frustrating than, than having 
being engaged in relationships with opportunists, whether um, it's working in an office environment or it's a neighborhood or it's church or it's family. We all know them, and honestly, we've probably all been them. An opportunist, I actually looked up the definition because I wanted to make sure I was going to say it right, is a person, quote, who exploits circumstances to gain immediate advantage rather than being guided by consistent principles or plans. An opportunist is a person who exploits circumstances to gain immediate advantage rather than being guided by consistent principles or plans. In other words, an opportunist is somebody who takes advantage of something for his or her own benefit and doesn't really care how it may affect the other person, whether it's a family, whether it's a team, whether it's a church. Opportunists, and we, we deal with them. Have, have you experienced this in your life? I've found that when somebody cuts me off, whether it's on the highway or more importantly, I mean, Mr. Monster Truck, who knows, maybe he was on the way to the hospital or maybe his cat just died. Who knows what was wrong with him, but maybe there was a good reason. I don't know. Maybe there was. But when somebody cuts me off in a relationship, though, and gets an advantage, I can think of... um, experiences in my past where someone who, you know, I I feel like, okay, Lord, I would really love to have this particular opportunity, but it would be a bit presumptuous for me to push to make it happen. So I'm going to wait. But then Joe Opportunist over here pushes, and it happens for him. And I think, well, and I, I, so I feel bad about that. And I have to ask myself, when that sort of thing happens, am I frustrated or am I really just jealous? Do I really wish that I had what they were getting? The Lord never promised us in the Christian life that we would be shielded from the temptation to be popular, to be great, to be admired. Um, he just instead promised that it would be He said, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus told his disciples that greatness is a great goal. It's a wonderful goal. In fact, Jesus applauded it. You want to pursue greatness? Go for it, Jesus said. Just make sure you understand what greatness is. It's probably not what you think. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of John, chapter 13. John 13. This is the Passion Week. In fact, it's the end of the Passion Week. We're about to walk upstairs to the upper room on the western hill in Jerusalem. You can go there today and visit a building called the Cynical from the, from the uh, Italian Latin word that means supper. Cine means supper, cynical. Um, Mark and Luke tell us that in order to prepare for the Passover... Jesus sent James and John and Peter to go find a particular man who was carrying water and to follow that man, and he would lead him to a house that has an upper room that is fully furnished. And then they were to speak to the owner of the house and prepare the upper room. It seems a bit unusual. Why would, why would we be given that detail that John and Peter were to go find a servant with water 
who would lead them to an upper room. Except that when we get to John chapter 13, we find Jesus and his disciples somehow have come to this house that we know has a servant with a pitcher of water because the servant led them to that house. And yet there's no servant with a pitcher of water to wash their feet when they get there. The Bible doesn't say it. it is absolute pure conjecture on my part, but I feel like Jesus planned it that way. It's not that there was a lack of a servant at the upper room with a pitcher of water, but Jesus may, may have arranged it, and it is recorded by John that um, this experience of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. Just before this event in the parallel in Luke, we're told that they were arguing over which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. That's a quote, regarded to be the greatest. Not just the greatest, which one of them was the greatest, which one was regarded to be the greatest. What do people think about me? That was what they were fighting over. So John chapter 13, let's begin and just read verse 1 here to kind of set the context. John writes, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Literally, you might look in your margin there, it says that he, he loved them to the uttermost, or he loved them eternally. Some might translate it that way, but the full, he showed them the full extent of his love. He loved them, not just to the end, but he loved them completely. He's going to show them the complete, uh, the completeness of his love. Jesus' disciples, every one of them, were opportunists. You read through the Gospels and you see this original team of rivals was a group of opportunists. These Galilean nobodies saw Jesus as the opportunity for personal greatness. Judas is the most famous of these opportunists who used Jesus as a hopeful advantage for a financial gain. James and John used a family relationship, probably, with Jesus to try to garner the box seats in the kingdom of God. Peter used his close relationship with Jesus in this very context to boast of his superiority in his devotion to Jesus. And each of the twelve as I mentioned from Luke, argued about which of them was regarded to be the greatest. These guys were opportunists all. They were looking for a way to get ahead, even if accelerating meant cutting off a brother driving a Prius. When the goal is promotion or position or esteem or how somebody regards you, Other people really never come to mind except when they get in the way. And then the goal is to to elbow them out. So that's sort of the context. Look at verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel 
with which he was girded. That last verse I just read, he poured water into the basin. I wonder what he used to do that. Probably a pitcher with water. Probably a pitcher with water. So the pitcher with water was around, but there was no servant around to do the work that Jesus picked up the basin and the towel to do. Ironically, the greatest person in the room took up the basin and towel to wash the feet. How could Jesus do that? We don't really have a, we have so elevated the idea of foot washing that we don't look at it as they looked at it in uh, the early days. Today, I, I don't know, maybe we think about scrubbing toilets, scrubbing floors. Um, just think of the most menial, almost humiliating task that we, we hire somebody to do because we don't want to do it, and we would really not like to be seen doing it. And that's sort of what we're looking at with foot washing. It was something a servant did, and it was something done to you. It's not something that you would do. And yet Jesus did it. How could he do that? How could he lower himself to take on that kind of a role? Well, John tells us. It's a bit embedded in the text, but let's see if we can pull out our spade and find it. Verse Three. There's, there's quite a bit of detail in these, um, these verses that we'll try to get into, but let's look at verse 3, because there are three reasons in verse 3 that Jesus could, could do this. And basically, it was that he had a firm security personally in three areas. Let's look at verse 3 again. It says, Jesus knowing, one, that the Father had given all things into his hands, Two, that he had come forth from God. And three, was going back to God. There's there's the reason. There's the basis by which Jesus could do this menial task. His role, his relationship, and his hope. His role, the Father had given all things into his hands. In about 43 days from this conversation, Jesus would utter the words, All authority is given to me. All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. The Great Commission. Christ realized that the Father had given all things into his hands. His role as the sovereign, as the one who gives the commission, Jesus had a firm confidence in that. He knew it. He was confident of it. There was no doubt who he was, and what his role was. Second, that he had come forth from God, John says. Jesus knew this. His confidence was in his relationship with the Father. And finally, that he was going back to God. He also had hope in the ascension. He was looking forward to that. His role, his relationship, and his hope. Because Jesus had such a firm confidence in this, John says, knowing. In fact, the way that John writes this, if you have the New American Standard and you know how the English language works, you can kind of get a sense of it because it well translates what the Greek does in verses 3 and 4. It says, knowing. So this is a participle. that, In other words, because of what Jesus knows, then he can do, verse 4, got up, laid aside, verse 5, 
uh, he pours water into the basin. And the way John writes this, I don't know if you have, my, my Bible has a little, a little mark next to the words got up and laid aside. It indicates that the translators have taken a little liberty there with the tense because the way John wrote it originally would sound a little funny to us. It's called a, a historical present. It's sort of John writes it. It's something, it's a past event, but he writes it in the present tense to kind of give it this feeling of action. Um, in other words, you know, Jesus gets up. He lays aside his garment. That, that's the idea. It's like John's describing it and you're watching it happen as it unfolds. But the point is that Jesus had a confidence. He was so sure in his role, in his relationship, in his hope that he is able to get up from supper, lay aside his garments, gird himself with a towel, and do this menial task. He is so confident in who he is that it doesn't, it doesn't become beneath him to do this task that would normally seem humiliating. The principle pretty easily can transfer to our lives, can it? Let's say the Lord puts you in a position where you are forced or you are asked by God to do something that's beneath you. You're asked by God to do something you don't want to do. It's clear that it's His will for you, but doing it is embarrassing, it's humiliating, it's something that you uh, really don't want to do, and yet it's clear that He has it for you to do. How can you do it and maintain dignity? Same reason Jesus could. Because you have a confidence in your role as a child of God, in your relationship with the Father, and in your hope that you're going to the Father. There is no task that God could give you in this life that would ever change those truths. You are so confident in who you are as a Christian. Anything God asks of you is no longer beneath you because it doesn't change what's true of you in your role, in your relationship, and in your hope. Jesus, knowing these things, John said, got up, laid aside, and washed the disciples' feet. These men who wondered who, who was regarded to be the greatest. Remember, Muhammad Ali sort of built a career off of claiming to be the greatest. Remember that? Um, what was his phrase? You know, he'd always say, I am the greatest. I'm, I remember reading about a time that he was in an airplane, and it was in a storm, and the stewardess noted that the captain had turned on the seatbelt sign, but Ali didn't put on his seatbelt. And she said, champ, you need to buckle up. We're, you know, the, turned on the seatbelt sign. Superman don't need no seatbelt, he said. And she said, Superman don't need no airplane. Buckle up. <laughs> You know, and I've thought of that often with regard to the disciples, and they're regarded to be the greatest. God doesn't choose supermen. God doesn't choose Wonder Woman to be in the family of God. He uses garden variety, ordinary people like you and me who need to buckle up. We are not God's gift to humanity in our area of expertise, we are not the greatest. 
And I, I think our temptation is going to often be to exploit whatever gift we have to cut somebody off to get the recognition that we feel that we deserve. But how willing are we to do what Jesus, the Son of God, set, to set aside our greatness for a season as Jesus did and wash feet? After my grandfather passed away many years ago, we planted an oak tree in our front yard. You know, it was small. Uh, oak trees take forever to grow, and it was probably six feet tall, not that tall, pretty skinny. Uh, planted it, you know, and set it there, and the wind later that afternoon was blowing, and, and it just, you know, blew the whole thing over. It was like I walked over to it, and it was like, you know, a ball and a a ball on a socket. It just, I could wiggle it around, so I staked it down. And a couple of years later, I came back and removed the ropes around it and moved it around, and it was good and solid. So the roots had really taken, taken ground. But the thing is, if you looked at it, it didn't look like a change at all. It's still about six feet tall and skinny. The first two years of this oak tree's work were all underground. Its goal was its roots. Its priority in its early days was its roots, not its limbs and its leaves. Our world turns that on its head for us, doesn't it? Um, our Christian culture turns that on its head. The roots are assumed in, our, in the Christian life. We just assume that you're reading your Bible. We just assume that you know, you're walking with God. We just assume there's no sin in your life. We just assume everything with the roots is okay. But if we don't give attention to those things, and instead we give attention to just lengthening our limbs and beautifying our leaves, the thing that everybody sees, the thing in which we are regarded to be the greatest, then our tree is going to flop over as soon as the wind blows. We all feel that daily tension to water our leaves, lengthen our limbs, neglect our roots. But nobody ever grows spiritually by accident. It doesn't just happen. It's got to be intentional. That oak tree focused underground the first two years. That was very intentional. God designed it that way so that tree would have stability. You and I are very much the same. You're not just going to walk into your bathroom you know, one morning, flip the light on, look in the mirror and go, well, what do you know? I'm spiritual. <laughs> Didn't plan to be. Never thought it would happen, but there it is. I'm spiritual. It's an intentional decision. And it's hard work. And it's lonely work. It's solo work. Your relationship with God is something nobody, most nobody sees. It's all underground. It's all roots. And it's something you've got to daily be watering. We spend a lot of our energy, and I'll just be honest, we spend a lot of our energy watering and beautifying and trimming what everybody sees. But we've got to make sure that we're also taking care of what's underground, that our taproot goes all the way to Jesus Christ, and we are developing and growing that. Um, I like the question that, have you seen the movie Groundhog Day? with Bill Murray. I'm not sure if I would recommend it. So let me, let me just recommend it without recommending it. Can I do that? It's a great movie to have seen. I wouldn't recommend you see it. 
Um, but anyway, in the movie, one of the, I think the best line is where Bill Murray, if you know the premise of the movie, Bill Murray somehow it gets trapped to where he is ex- literally experiencing the same day over and over and over. And it's this wonderful metaphor of the futility of life. And his question, he ends up, you know, after days and days of, the, of experiencing the same day, he's sitting with his buddies in a bar, and he asks them, what would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? And his buddy, who had had one beer too many, kind of said, well, that about sums it up for me. And I thought, you know, that about sums it up for a lot of us. We feel like we're stuck God has given us this menial task of washing feet. And it's not that glorious. This isn't the Christian life we thought it would be. This isn't all that we figured would happen when we followed Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed, but very few people ever attain stardom status in life. The greatness, regarded to be great. Most of us are just average people who long to be great. In our, in our secret, secret place in our hearts. And fame, it's sort of interesting when you read the news. Um, would you like to be famous? Would you like to be famous? Now, I'm not asking, would you like to be rich? Would you like to be famous? <laughs> it's easier to turn our heads at that because we see the fallout that goes along with being rich and famous. It hangs on the thin wires of what have you done for me lately? You know, it's got to be the latest the latest book, the latest movie, the latest greatest hit. And as soon as you quit producing great stuff, you go from rock star to rock bottom, from the national news to the National Enquirer. (laughs) People quit admiring your talent, and they begin gawping at your weight gain, your hair loss, and your DWIs. I think about this after I watch the Super Bowl or the Academy Awards. I often think, you know, how the world's glory lasts but a moment. I mean, who knows who won Best Actor in 1983? (laughs) Nobody knows because nobody cares. Nobody cares. We cared in that moment, and yet that moment is gone. That's why, frankly, I'm very glad that the Lord has made so many of us average and not exceedingly gifted. Because typically, I think, and, and there are exceptions, of course, but typically a gift can, it represents a responsibility to the body of Christ from our perspective as Christians. But I think also we can believe the, mm, the lie that a gift becomes God's will at all costs. Think about Jesus for a second before you stand up and say, you know what, Wayne, that's not right. Think about Christ for a moment. Nobody more gifted than Jesus. Nobody more who excelled at being a human than Christ. Think about how gifted he was even as a youth. We we catch a glimpse of it as he is talking with the leaders at the age of 12. The brilliance of his wisdom even as a 12-year-old. And then we've got these 18-plus years of silence where we don't know what happens, and yet we know what happened. He was a carpenter. He was a carpenter for 30-plus years before he began his ministry. The Son of God 
Chiseling mortises. Making tables and chairs. What a waste of talent. He was so gifted, and all he did for all that time was be a carpenter. You know, in that, he gives us a great model. And you know the passage in Philippians as well. In fact, let's look at that for a moment. Keep your hand in John 13. We'll come back to it. But look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, opportunists, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The idea is live it out, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, on both sides of this familiar passage that we call the kenosis of Jesus emptying himself, we have the commands not to be selfish, don't look out for your own interest, but then you have the example of Christ, and then he ends it up again. Make sure that you're obeying him with fear and trembling. The example of Jesus is one who was gifted in all things and yet who willingly chose not to exercise his giftedness in all things in order to do just what the Father had told him. You may be far more gifted than the Lord is using. You may have potential, talent, ability, uh, capability that's sitting on the shelf. And you feel like, Lord, why aren't you using me? Why am I not being used to my full potential? Does it help to know that Jesus wasn't? That Jesus willingly chose to only do what the Father had given him to do? If you're in a season right now where you feel like, God, I'm, uh, you're not using me to my full potential, and the temptation is to push and to elbow others and to become that opportunist like the disciples, who were weary of waiting on God and instead decided to use Jesus to push ahead so that they could be realized for the greatness that they were. Just pause in that moment and realize that even Christ set aside the full use of his potential in order to be obedient to the will of the Father. 
Jesus' example shows us that you can glorify God just as much in your lack of using your gift, if it's his will, than in you using that gift that fully satisfies you. That's a hard thing to embrace. And yet, the example of Jesus, both in Philippians 2 and in the upper room, as he stripped and as he washed feet, he gives us that example. Turn back to John, and let's look at verse 6 through 11. Verses 6 through 11. John 13, 6. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Um, so Jesus even washed Judas' feet in this context, we realize. And, of course, Peter, Peter's objection, it's so easy to pick on Peter until we realize that John is recording this as a mirror for us to see ourselves. Peter's literal words there in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? That's the emphasis. You? I mean, I'm, I don't object to having my feet washed, but not by you. It's sort of like having Chuck come over and mop your house. You would never ask Chuck to do that. But here's Jesus washing Peter's feet. And notice Peter didn't object. It says, when, so he came to Simon Peter. So, I mean, Peter didn't object to Jesus washing James's feet, but you're not going to wash my feet. There is a pride even in, in that. It's like Jesus, uh, Peter doesn't object until it's his turn. You're not going to wash my feet. And when he says, never shall you wash my feet, literally, I mean, John couldn't have made it more emphatic. A literal translation, as best I can figure it, is, you will in no, you will in absolutely no way wash my feet into forever. Talk about emphatic. You are not going to wash my feet. And then notice how he swings when Jesus says, well, if I don't wash, then you have no part with me. Then Simon Peter says, okay, well then I'll jump in head first. Let's go swimming. So Peter, you've got to love him. He is, he is a man who, who uh, is all in for Christ, even though he's a little misguided takes time to grow, doesn't it? That a servant, here Peter is learning that uh, a servant not only serves, but he's willing to be served. And he's willing to let the Lord bless him. He's willing to let the Lord bless him. I won't get into all the details of this uh, foot washing and what it necessarily represents. You're clean, you're not clean. Probably represents confession. Probably represents confession. You're still saved, but you need, you're out of fellowship. You're out of fellowship with God until you have your feet washed or till you confess before the Lord. But here's something I would like to note that's, that serves our big purpose here of talking about not being an opportunist in the spiritual life. Jesus served in the context of being misunderstood 
His disciples didn't understand what he was doing, and they certainly were not going to understand the crucifixion that was about to happen. Jesus served in a context of being misunderstood and in a context of betrayal. Jesus didn't wait and say, I'm going to wait till you guys got it together and then I'm going to serve you. He served. Now transfer that into your life. It's a lot easier to serve people who get it. It's a lot harder to serve people who misunderstand you, who accuse you, who betray you. This is what Jesus did. He served in that context. We've all heard words like this before, maybe growing up. Um, maybe from a parent, maybe from someone of the opposite sex, maybe from a teacher, maybe from a pastor. Things like, you're stupid, or you're, you'll never amount to anything, or, you know, your nose looks kind of funny. We've all heard things like that. And we can probably all think back to our childhood and statements that were made by unthinking people, whether they were meant to hurt us or whether it was just a throwaway statement that somehow stuck to us, and we have not forgotten it. And somehow, those things have defined us as we've grown up. I heard about a, um, a man who trained animals for the movies in an Arizona circus. Somebody asked him, how do you tie down that six-ton elephant with the same size stake that you tie down a baby elephant? And the man said, oh, that's easy. When they're babies, we stake them down. And they pull against it, and they, they pull, and they pull time after time until they finally realize, I can't pull the stake. As a baby, it doesn't have the strength. But it does have the elephant's great memory. And the elephant remembers, I can't pull up that stake. So as it grows, as it gets strong, as it could pull up the whole tent, it doesn't even try to pull up the stake because it knows it can't, even though it can. It's learned that. Somebody makes those uncaring, unkind statements against you when you were growing up. A lot of times that drives a stake in your mind. And you feel like that's an immovable truth that I can't get around. But the reality is, after you've grown in the spiritual life, you come to the place where, you know, if you gave, if you gave that thing a little tug, you'd realize you could pull it right up. The lies that you've heard all your life about who you are really aren't true. You could pull it up. God's given you strength as you've grown. He's given you truth in the Word. You can pull it up. Be careful about the approval of men rather than the approval of God. We're in John 13. Look back up just a few verses into John 12, right before this, the context that John sets up before these great men. John 12, verse, verse 43 says, They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. This is speaking of the rulers who were afraid to confess their faith in Christ because they were afraid of the Pharisees. They love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And then you've got chapter 13 where the disciples are struggling with the exact same thing about being regarded as the greatest. And I mention that with regard to you and your growing up and believing uh, maybe things, lies that you've heard all your life. 
Beware of the approval of men and as opposed to the approval of God. Jesus served in a context of being misunderstood, being accused, lies were told against him, being betrayed, and yet he still was able to serve. Why? Because, verse 3, he knew his role, his relationship, and his hope. His role as the child, uh, as, a, as the Son of God, his relationship with the Father, and the hope of going back to God. You have that same, that same truth, don't you? So, how can you serve in a situation that is below you? How can you serve in a situation where you feel like, you know what, I really need to push to get out of here. Here's my opportunity. I'm going to take this opportunity and push. I'm going to cut off this little Prius here and move forward in my, in my relationships. How can you downshift and just say, Lord, I'm going to wait on you? And if you never open the door for me to become great, and whatever, however I define greatness, that's fine. Because I know my relationship with you, I know my role, and I know my hope, just like Christ. Just like Christ was able to set aside his gifts and to serve, become a servant, and the confidence that he had as the Son of God, so we can have that same confidence even when we feel like we're not recognized as being great. Let's pray. Lord, we sit in the upper room with the disciples and we read John's words, look around and see that Jesus is not just talking to these 12 men, but he's talking to us. We understand the great challenge of our sinful nature, of our desire to have some kind of significance and to want to push as the opportunists do and to get ahead, to be regarded as the greatest in whatever, however we want to define that. And yet we see Jesus rise from the table, set aside his garments, and take on a menial task because he had such confidence in who he was that serving in a menial way was not below him. Lord, give us that same attitude. Let the mind that is in Christ also be in us. That Jesus, who was God in the flesh, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So help us to have that same kind of attitude. You're going to give us opportunities this very week to be a servant to do things that are far below our giftedness and our ability, and yet you've called us to do it. May we do it with joy, finding our, um, finding our joy. As Jesus said, you are blessed, not if you know these things, but if you do them. So let us be blessed in knowing that we're glorifying you, even when nobody sees but you. Nobody sees those roots growing but you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.